Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hi. <laughs> and also joining us today is a special guest. Kelly Little. Kelly is JCPL's graphic designer and resident newbie kombucha brewer. (laughs) Hello. So Kelly, um, I guess you listened to the podcast last month and our discussion of kombucha. Yes. (laughs) And you're here here to dispel any myths we may have um, given out about kombucha. Because I called it fart water, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to give kombucha a better name than what you guys gave it last week. (laughs) All right, so so what can you tell us? Well, okay, so you said newbie, and that's correct, because I've only gone through the full process one time, but I got good results um, from it. And um, I have a couple of friends who've made kombucha for a while, so they're like my kombucha mentors. <laughs> and uh, one of them had an extra SCOBY, which is the thing that you put on top. And that it's kind of slimy. I mean, it, it's 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 kind of slimy. You kind of have to get used to the texture. You kind of expect that. This it, It's healthy if it's slimy like that. Um, but um, the process actually isn't that hard. Um, I watched a video my friend sent me. And essentially what it is is you take water and then you put a certain amount of sugar in it and then you boil it so that the sugar dissolves and then you take tea bags and they're tea bags of your choice you could use green tea or black tea or lipton tea or whatever kind of tea Um, and then you steep that for a certain amount of time the thing that takes the longest in the making of it is letting the the essentially sweet tea mixture cool to 90 degrees Um, And then you take that mixture and you pour it into a glass, a clear glass container. And then that's when you put the SCOBY in it. And then you let it sit with a um, cotton cloth over the top. Um, And you let it sit for about two weeks. It takes about two weeks for the bacteria to eat all the sugar and ferment it. Um, Mm -hmm. You can let it sit for longer if you don't like it as sweet. You kind of just kind of taste it along the way and kind of decide what your kind of length of time is. So it's not really hard. You do want to set it away from sunlight, though. It said, she said, sit it in a quiet place so it can sit by itself for two weeks as sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I like it. And Carrie Carrie tried it. um, Mm -hmm. So what do you think? So I have a very, very important question. Okay. Did you did you try a piece of the SCOBY? You don't eat it. I have inadvertently tried a piece of the scoby. <laughs> How was it? It was nasty. It was like a big old flood. Yeah, I like. I want to do it again. I actually want to try that book that you guys are talking about. I'm pretty sure it goes into. Uh, you have to do a second fermentation if you want it, it to be flavored. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so, I, yeah, Adam, I see your, <laughs> your face. Um, you ferment it once, and it eats all the sugar, and then you ferment it a second time, and so the bacteria can work on the sugar in the fruit. And so that's what kind of gives it the flavor. Mm. So so it might also, because it's been aged longer, that probably affects the taste, too. Exactly, yeah. And, and honestly, like, 
it, I think that people who are brand new to the thought of fermenting something at home might be intimidated by it, but it's not like if you do one thing a little bit differently than what you're told, it's going to ruin it or make it dangerous. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you want it less sweet, you let it sit for longer. You know, you don't have to, it's not like it's like you have to go this specific time and you can't drink it before then, or you can't drink it after, you know what I mean? It's kind of flexible. So. Well, thanks Kelly um, for coming on and helping us out with kombucha. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great thing. I think people should try it and not be intimidated by it. Just give it a try. And if you like it, you can keep doing it. So our theme for today is the eighth prompt on the Books and Bites Challenge, Classics. First off, can you all believe that we're already on the eighth prompt? No, it's uh, it's kind of flying by. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've been here for eight prompts. No, I don't think you have. Oh. Well, I know you have. <laughs> but also, we're in this weird COVID time warp. <laughs> where just everything feels weird, I think. Yeah, just kind of yeah. floating along, batting things as they come up, mostly. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times people think of classics as like the kind of book you read in school. But one thing that I think people should keep in mind is that almost any genre has a classic, like classic Westerns or classic mysteries. I don't know. You classic horror. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, I have one book that adheres strictly to the classics theme and one that is loosely based on a classic. Uh, so I think we're going to start with the definite classic. Much Ado About Nothing by William Shakespeare. Ah, <laughs> but it's not just Much Ado About Nothing by Billy Shakes. It's Manga Shakespeare. Ooh. Yeah, y'all had to know <laughs> This adaptation by Richard Apianesi and Emma Viacelli takes the usual Shakespeare witticisms and accents them with zany manga expression. If you, like me, have trouble picking up on tone and subtlety when reading ye old English, the visual cues in this book will help immensely. Personally, I don't have the Shakespearean education to pick out which lines are jokes and which are entirely serious, but I feel a bit more prepared after reading this book. If you don't know the story, the title pretty much says it all. It's a lot of ado about basically nothing. Just some young folks getting together and playing matchmaker, coupled with some old-timey misogyny that I really could have done without. Um, <laughs> the story follows a number of characters. I feel that Beatrice and Benedict are the stars. They've got a teasing adversarial romance that's all about battles of wit, retort, and wordplay. Meanwhile, there is a, an empty, problematic romance that serves as the main impetus for the story, that of Hero and Claudio. Uh, Hero's lines are mostly scant and harmless, and she's really treated as more of an object by all the men, including her father, just disturbing. Uh, in the story, then as an individual, not to give spoilers for this 422-year-old story, uh, <laughs> 
quite a strong kombucha if we uh, fermented that long. <laughs> uh, but Claudio basically treats Hero like trash when they're about to wed. Then they still get happily married at the end as if most of the men celebrating the marriage hadn't just publicly abused her the day before. But I digress. Uh, while some parts of the story are infuriating, it's got plenty of Shakespearean humor with over-the-top manga expressions to boot. It could also be some great supplemental reading if you're having trouble understanding the story in plain text. This manga Shakespeare adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing is available in hard copy from JCPL. Um, you can accompany the tart romance of Much Ado About Nothing with a fresh strawberry granita. This Italian ice dessert is made with fresh strawberries, sugar, ice, and the added options of lemon juice and balsamic vinegar. And the recipe can be found on allrecipes.com. That sounds good. Yeah. So the, the drawings are in kind of manga style, I assume. Are they dressed... Contem in contemporary clothes or um, no i think what they're going for is a typical venetian dress at the time like it's it's not contemporary it's all very much set in the original setting mm -hmm. um they just use a lot of manga expressions and uh illustrating style mm -hmm. are there other shakespeare adaptations in manga oh yeah for sure so manga shakespeare uh, is a, um, let's see who the publisher is on this. Amulet Books does that. So there should be all kinds of different options. Oh, yeah. Right on the back of the book. Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, The Tempest, which is my favorite, uh, King Lear, Macbeth, Hamlet, and Otello. Cool. Awesome. At least. Yeah. My first recommendation is The Auctioneer by Joan Sampson. First, I'm going to give a little background on this forgotten classic. When it was first published in 1976, it quickly became a bestseller and garnered really good reviews, with some comparing it to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. There's even a film adaptation already greenlit. However, just five months after publication, Joan Sampson passed away from cancer. The film was shelved and the book faded into relative obscurity. Even though it was mostly forgotten, it kicked off a whole wave of rural slash small town horror novels like Maynard's House, The Old God's Waken, and Children of the Corn. The book did survive, though, by word of mouth in the used bookstores, becoming an underground classic, eventually being reprinted a couple of times over the years. If you have ever read Stephen King's Needful Things, you'll see the major influences the auctioneer likely played in him crafting that story. The story follows the Moore family, John, Mim, Hildy, and Ma, living outside the rural small town of Harlow, New Hampshire, on a farm that has been in their family for generations. Bob Gore, the town sheriff, shows up looking for items for the Moors to donate to an auction to help raise money to hire more deputies. With a recent unsolved murder in town and stories of city crime beginning to infiltrate nearby towns, people of Harlow are becoming fearful and looking for law and order. Enter Pearly Dunsmore, the recently arrived smooth-talking, charismatic auctioneer who stokes the town's fears. He uses this to his advantage to impose his devious plan by organizing popular auctions that are on the surface supposed to fund more deputies and be good for the town, but end up flooding the town with rich outsiders, depleting the town of its resources and possessions. 
Perley and his deputies keep asking for the town to give more and more to the auctions. But when people start to push back, they have quote-unquote accidents. Perley keeps asking for more and more, and when their lives and freedom start to be put up on the auction block, a town meeting is called that ends in an unflinching scene of horror. The increasing desperation of the Moore family is almost palpable throughout, as, as is the tension that is slowly built over the course of the novel until it is unleashed in the star finale. This novel is a product of its times when people began to flee their crime-ridden cities for the supposed safe confines of the country. It's also surprisingly poignant today, telling a story about a con man taking control of a small town in the name of law and order by enlarging his police force and using them as his own personal enforcers, as well as exhibiting the dark side of capitalism and dangers of fascism. Now, back in print during the golden age of horror, it's finally receiving the attention it deserves as a horror classic. Rita likes would include the two already mentioned, Stephen King's Needful Things and Shirley Jackson's Lottery, but I would also include Thomas Tryon's Harvest Home. The auctioneer is available through Kentucky Libraries Unbound. So inspired by the country setting, I paired this with Mountain Green Beans and Taters, a recipe found in Robert Lundy's Vittles. This recipe calls for two pounds of green beans, a quarter pound of salt pork, a half a teaspoon of salt, plus more for seasoning, and 16 golf ball sized new potatoes. You want to boil the beans for about an hour, then add the potatoes to the pot, submerging them in the broth, letting them simmer for about 20, 30 minutes until they're tender enough to break apart. We had this with meatloaf last week and it was delicious. Even the uh, in-laws enjoyed it. <laughs> Do they not usually enjoy your uh, It's <laughs> not much. <laughs> I have to say, I'm pretty sure I've had those exact green beans for very many an Eastern Kentucky home cooked oh, meal. Yeah. yeah, that sounds delicious. Oh, yeah. Seen some cornbread, it would be great. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. I made green beans um, this week too, green beans and potatoes, although I did not use pork fat. No, I know, but so delicious though. first book that I wanted to talk about is The Street by Anne Petrie. And um, we talked a little bit on the p- podcast last month about sub themes. And I have my own little sub theme this week. Uh, lately, I've been trying to read books by women that were hugely popular at the time they were published, but have since fallen out of the literary canon. Originally published in 1946, The Street was the first novel by an African-American woman to sell more than a million copies. The beautiful illustration on this recently reissued edition caught my eye on the library shelf, and I'm very glad it did. The book follows single mother Ludie Johnson as she moves out of her father's house with her eight-year-old son, Bub. The only place she can afford is a dank apartment in Harlem, but Ludie prefers to take her chances there with the building's creepy super rather than keep Bub living under the bad influences of her father and his girlfriend. Besides, Ludie is filled with self-confidence and doesn't intend to stay there long, believing that with this apartment, she's, quote, just one step farther on the ladder of success, unquote. 
The street documents Ludi's struggle to make it ahead in a world intent on keeping Black people in their place. When band leader Boots Smith notices her singing voice one night at local bar, The Gento, she thinks she's found her chance to break out of poverty's cycle. This atmospheric, richly detailed novel fully humanizes its cast of characters, even the minor ones such as Mrs. Hedges, a madam who operates out of the apartment building, and the super's girlfriend, Min. The Harlem Street, where the majority of the book takes place, becomes a character itself. The plot is engrossing and the writing engaging, and I hope this edition helps the book find its well-deserved place in schools and book clubs. That said, The Street is definitely not an easy read. Though the ending feels apt, it did make me want to throw the book across the room, probably a sign of just how much I'd grown to care about Ludie and her son. On Ludie's first visit to the Gento, she understands why her neighbors go to places like it, despite the fact that they can hardly afford the price of a beer. Quote, they had to replace the haunting silences of rented rooms and little apartments with a murmur of voices, the sound of laughter, she thinks. They had to empty two or three small glasses of liquid gold so they could believe in themselves again. Unquote. Toast the street with a glass of Black is Beautiful beer, a collaborative brewing effort that attempts quote, to bring awareness to the injustices that many people of color face daily, unquote. Marcus Baskerville, the African-American head brewer and co-owner of Weathered Souls Brewery in San Antonio, developed the beer's recipe and is encouraging breweries across the country to put their own spin on it. Pivot, Ethereal, and Mirror Twin Brewing in Lexington all carry Black is Beautiful and are contributing 100% of the beer's proceeds to Black Soil, a Kentucky organization that aims to, quote, foster a greater market share for Black farmers and producers, unquote, among other goals. My husband picked up a six-pack for us at Ethereal, an imperial stout this beer is much darker and richer than either of us normally drinks, and certainly darker than the liquid gold Ludi drinks, but we both enjoyed its coffee notes and hint of sweetness. It's got a great smell, and it packs a wallop at 10%. Scott threw the rest of them into the beer fridge. Yes, he has a beer fridge for cooler evenings. It's <laughs> good. Yeah, it sounds tasty. Yeah, I would like to try some of that. So, right, uh, my second book is absolutely a stretch of the term classic. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about the violent horrorscape manga that is Wonderland, written and illustrated by Yugo Ishikawa. This title is recommended for older teens, uh, I would say around late high school and early college, by the publisher. I categorize it as, if you can watch Game of Thrones, you'll be fine reading this. Um, <laughs> bear in mind that there's at least six volumes to this manga and probably more to come. Uh, the very first volume contains little direct reference to the original Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Um, but I'll point it out as I describe the story, uh, what actually does connect to it in this first volume. 
Um, so it all starts with an ominous depiction of murders of crows congregating outside. Um, side note, squirrel moment. I have to wonder if a group of crows is called a murder. What's a group of murders for crows? <laughs> is it like a serial murder, a murder spree? You guys have any opinion on that? I, I guess it'd be a serial, a series of murders. Yeah. By the same person would be a serial killer. Hmm. Well, it's something to think about. Chew the fat, so to speak. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, our main character, Yuko, wakes up in a massively oversized bed, greeted by her dog in garg- gargantuan form. Uh, completely unfazed, she goes right back to bed because she's clearly dreaming. And I don't think I can vault her for doing that. Um, at least she thinks that she's dreaming. Yuko climbs to the window using her big doof of a dog where she sees hungry, angry crows at her window. This is followed by, a, frankly, a very disturbing scene where her parents, also shrunk, sacrifice themselves to save Yuko from the house cat. Uh, what follows is a tiny, gut-wrenching trek through gored streets of tiny people being set upon by murders of crows and prides of cats i know it's a i know it's a pride for lions but that feels off for house cats maybe like a, a contempt of cats <laughs> i love them but they can be really hateful creatures sometimes um uh, eventually yuko encounters alice a cosplaying badass full of survival instincts possibly supernatural abilities and zero ability to communicate in yuko's language Together, they navigate dangerous streets, convenience stores, and the like to survive their harsh new reality. While the story does hint at the source of everyone's tininess and the possible origins of this phenomena, phenomena. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to leave it up to our listeners to read and find out what's happening on their own. Wonderland Volume 1 is available in hard copy at JCPL. This tiny horror story deserves equally tiny snacks. How about mini homemade Pop-Tarts? These pocket-sized pastries pack a fruitful flavor with just a few ingredients. Uh, Check out this recipe and other teeny tasties in Tiny Food Party, bite-sized recipes for miniature meals by (laughs) Terry Lynn Fisher and Jenny Park, available in hard copy at JCPL. My husband has a theory that food tastes better when it's in tiny form i mean like dumplings i mean yeah those are tiny packages of goodness yeah like it has to make up for being tiny by having a lot of flavor right if i pick up like a a pierogi or something and it tastes like nothing i'm gonna feel really disappointed (laughs) Um, yeah also, I think there's just something about the human brain that gets excited when it sees tiny things. So all that excited energy when you see a tiny thing is just amplified so you taste it more. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. Or you just <laughs> swallow it whole. <laughs> right. You all watch the, there's like YouTube videos of people making tiny food and like, I like there's hours of. That sounds oddly satisfying. Yeah, I mean, I haven't watched. I haven't watched very many of them, but they're like really well 
you know, crafted. They have these tiny kitchens and tiny dishes and they're making their tiny food. <laughs> wow. It's such a weird place. <laughs> you know, this is, this is totally off topic. So there's an episode of SpongeBob where he makes teeny tiny Krabby Patties for Roach's restaurant. <laughs> and that's what I thought of. <laughs> yeah, tiny food is cute. <laughs> That's very thoughtful of Spongebob, too. (laughs) My second recommendation is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. This one has been on my TBR for a while and have had it lined up for this month ever since we started the Books and Bites Reading Challenge. We Have Always Lived in the Castle, written in 1962, was Jackson's final novel. It's not quite as well known as The Haunting of Hill House, but it's just as good, if not better. Shirley Jackson is an author who kind of gets lost in the American canon. You've likely read her short story, The Lottery, or her haunted house novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Personally, one of my all-time favorite novels for school. Or maybe you've seen the excellent Netflix series adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House, or the recent film Shirley, that's on Hulu a fictionalized account of her life, or even the 2018 adaptation of this very book. I watched Shirley, and I didn't know that was about a real person. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Mary Catherine Blackwood, who prefers to go by Mary Cat, lives with her older sister Constance and her wheelchair-bound Uncle Julian, secluded in the Blackwood Mansion on the outskirts of a Vermont town, as the last surviving members of the Blackwood family. Her entire family is dead. They died six years previous when her mother, father, aunt, and brother were poisoned with arsenic at dinner when it was mixed into the sugar bowl. Constance was put on trial for the murder since she cooked dinner that night, but was acquitted. Since then, they've been living secluded in their mansion with Mary Cat only venturing out twice a week to go to the library and grocery store where the townsfolk, afraid and repulsed by her and her family, gawk and stare, with kids taunting and shouting at her cruel rhymes as she passes by. All three live contently in this isolated little world they've built for themselves, with Constance doing the cooking, cleaning, and tending to Uncle Julian, while Mary Cat helps Constance clean the house and ventures out to the woods with her cat Jonas, and Uncle Julian, who works away in his novel about the Blackwood family and the poisoning six years previous. That's until their cousin, Charles Blackwood, comes calling one day, invading and disrupting their lives, much to the consternation of Mary Cat and Uncle Julian, threatening to tear apart their isolated world. The short Gothic novel opens with one of the most striking opening paragraphs in literature. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I often thought that with any luck, at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I've had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Aminta Philides, the death cut mushroom. Everyone in my family is dead. As you can see, there's a lot to unpack from this paragraph. It tells you nearly all you need to know about our narrator, Mary Cat, and that you probably shouldn't trust everything she says. So if you enjoy atmospheric gothic tales or have read and enjoyed The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters or if you're a fan of Ruth Ware, I would highly recommend this novel. So recreating the infamous last meal of the Blackwood family, I pair this novel with the main entree from that meal, 
roasted spring lamb with a recipe found on the New York Times cooking website. The recipe I found is pretty straightforward, calling for a bone-in leg of lamb, anchovies, Dijon mustard, rosemary, garlic, and a couple of other ingredients. Mixing the anchovies, mustard, garlic, and rosemary into a paste, you'll smear it on the roast and roast in the oven for about 60 to 90 minutes, basically every 20 minutes or so. I haven't had a chance to make it yet, but I'm a fan of lamb, and it sounds absolutely delicious. Sounds like a good recipe to go with Black is Beautiful beer. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good pairing. So my second book is called So Big by Edna Ferber. Edna Ferber won the Pulitzer Prize for So Big in 1925. This was the first book I've read by her, though you may also know her as the author of Giant, which was later turned into a movie starring James Dean, and Showboat, which later became a musical. Selena Peek is a spirited 19-year-old woman living in turn-of-the-century Chicago when her father, a gambler, dies. With no money of her own or family to turn to, Selena moves to the Illinois prairie to become a teacher. Selena becomes part of the Dutch farming family she boards with, but her worldview is completely different from the pool's worldview. She constantly looks for and finds beauty in the world around her, even in the cabbages growing on the farm. Shortly after arriving, Selena falls in love with and marries a Dutch farmer, Purvis de Young. Farm life and marriage are more difficult than Selena expects, and the novel follows her as her circumstances rise and fall. Much of the second half of the book focuses on her son, Dirk. Rather than choose the life of beauty and art that Selena wants for him, Dirk becomes a bond trader, focused solely on earning money. I recommend this work of domestic fiction to fans of Willa Cather's Nebraska series. Though personally, I found So Big to be even more engaging and delightful than Cather's work. My favorite aspect of So Big is Selena's character. She does have her faults, including being a bit too devoted to her son, but she is strong, hardworking, curious, resilient, and able to see the beauty in the mundane. It was especially refreshing to read about a woman of that time period who is in charge of her own destiny. However, it's also hard not to compare Selena's life to Ludi's life in the street. Selena and Ludi both possess self-confidence and a drive to succeed, but it's clear that Selena's privilege allows her to achieve the success that Ludi is denied. I listened to this book on audio and loved Cassandra Campbell's narration. At just over 10 hours, this is a fairly long book for me to listen to, but I found myself utterly engrossed in the story the whole time. Find So Big on Hoopla as an audiobook or an ebook. Pair the novel with the Raw Thai Citrus Crunch Salad from Anna Jones's A Modern Way to Eat. Made with zucchini, carrots, red pepper, scallions, herbs, limes, and grapefruit, this salad will have even cabbage haters seeing its beauty. The dressing blends dates, cashews, ginger, garlic, chili, lime juice, and soy sauce. It's so good, I've been known to eat it by the spoonful. 
The salad is a bit time intensive, but the bright citrus and ginger flavors are well worth it. That dressing sounds delicious. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have the work ethic to make that salad. <laughs> that sounds really good. I would eat it if someone made it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't make it real often because it is, fairly, you know, a lot of chopping, but um, it makes a lot. So we're able to eat it like multiple days. Um, so, but yeah, I, even if you don't make all of use all of the ingredients in the salad just making that dressing um you'll you'll want to eat your salad when you use that dressing thanks for listening to the books and bites podcast to find out more about the podcast the books and bites challenge or the books and bites discussion group visit our website at justpublib.org slash books hyphen bites Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, doorforadesk.com.